Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy. God, you alone are holy. You alone are good. And God, you still love us. You have made a way for us through Jesus that we can spend all of our eternity with you. Where we would be changed not just in and for this life, but for all eternity. And God, for that we give you unending thanks. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. Thank you for his example of obedience even unto his own death. And God, just pray now as we look at your word and understand what it is to be a follower of his, God, you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what it is you would have for us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to talk the second of two weeks on the basics of Christianity. I had this thought that in the couple of weeks after Christmas, it would be a good way to start the new year, kind of get all of us on the same page of the basics of what the Bible says, that who we are to be and how we are to live as Christians. And I was so excited about last week, and then God took me out and Cindy hit a home run. Cindy, thank you. Whew. Talk about what was supposed to be. I know you said, I, watching you online, you said I had less than 24 hours. You truly had less than 24 hours. Speaking of obedience, thank you for your obedience, Cindy. Nice job. Thank you for sharing your heart and sharing God's Word with us. Um, there's nothing easier in the world. I've said this before. There's really nothing easier than becoming a Christian. I mean, you just accept the gift that God gives. Say thank you. The hard part is living as a Christian. Taking that free gift and putting it into practice and becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming uh, an example of His life with our life. That's not such an easy thing. And I, I wonder sometimes when I talk to people who aren't Christians if, if maybe the biggest objection they have is some Christians are so angry. Have you noticed that? I mean, when, when you really realize what God has done for us, we should be the happiest, most joy-filled people ever to fill the planet. And yet there are some Christians that are just angry and mean. And it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think they understand the basics of what it is to be a Christian. And, and so last, this week I want to take this second of two weeks. We're going to go back to the prodigal son and talk about what are some of the basics that the Bible lays out. I'm looking forward to this because my beginning 25 years ago in ministry was in outreach and evangelism. I spent all of my time talking to people who were either angry about Christianity, who were interested but not quite there yet, or were brand new baby Christians. And I spent every day in this kind of stuff, and it's awesome. But what happens is when you spend a little bit of time living as a Christian, you start thinking you got, you got your grips on it and I don't really have to worry about the basics anymore. Couldn't be less true. We all need to make sure that we stay fresh on the basics. So whether you're a brand new Christian, whether you're a not quite, I'm almost there, still thinking about a Christian, or you consider yourself a seasoned veteran of the faith, the basics of Christianity are good for us to all understand and be on the same page about. Basics like what? What do you mean by the basics? Well, how do I become a Christian? What do I do when I become a Christian? What is it that God expects of me? How am I supposed to live? Talk about being a new creation, but I feel like the same old me. What do I do when I know that I've really sinned? How about this one? Will God really forgive me for what I've done? 
These are the things that people ask. Maybe they're questions that you have. We could spend an entire year on this, and we only have one Sunday. If you've got a New Believers Bible, and, and this is the one that we hand out, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of these. I don't know how many hundreds we have given out because we believe as a Bible-teaching church, it is part of our privilege and our responsibility to put a Bible in your hands. The beginning of this Bible is a really well done basics of Christianity. A lot of this is going to be very, very similar to what you find there. I had this idea when I started thinking about this that we'd use the prodigal son because it's such a good example in human terms of of what we're talking about. And guess what? Greg Laurie in the introduction to this Bible uses the prodigal son. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 15 today. Cindy read it last week. We're going to study about it some more today. It's set as the third of three parables that Jesus is telling to a bunch of religious people and a bunch of sinners. First parable was about lost sheep. Second one is about what really matters, lost coin, money. And the third is about a lost son. Lest the folks he was talking to didn't understand it, Jesus decided to put it in very, very personal terms. Parable set with three main characters, a father, an older son, and a younger son. And there's really, Cindy and I were talking between services, there's kind of two layers to this one. There's a big picture layer where he's actually talking about Israel and Judah and and the way that people have strayed. And then there's the down-to-earth personal part that talks about God's relationship with each one of us. But what's interesting about Jesus' parables, as it is with all of the Bible, we get to decide for ourselves who we're going to identify with. I read a study once that said... When pastors preach a text about Jesus, where Jesus is speaking to the people, 90% of the pastors identify as Jesus. (laughs) That's a problem. When we read a text that Jesus is sharing with the people, 100% of us should put ourselves in the place of the people he's talking to. But we so often do, though, is we say, well, you know what, I got that figured out, so I'm kind of God in this one. Or I'm doing pretty well. I'm this son or I'm that daughter or I'm this person. Here's the deal. Be careful as you understand this parable and start identifying with it that you don't put yourself in the place of the father because the father is God. The two sons, you can identify with the two of those. They have very, very different outlooks on the situation. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and tax collectors and we're going to look in a moment. Sinners. Horrible sinners. And Jesus is getting in trouble for doing it. But the first thing to understand is, whether it's understanding this parable or what it is to be a Christian, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us. None of us can be made righteous before God on our own efforts. There is nothing you can do that will impress so God so much that you get to spend eternity with Him in heaven outside of a relationship with Jesus. We spent quite a while talking about that in some of Paul's letters. We're sinners literally dying in need of a Savior. And too much of the time when we read passages from the Bible, we look at ourselves as though we're God looking down on other people who are, who are lowly sinners that are more sinful people than we are. Please don't make that mistake. You'll miss the point every time. When Jesus is sharing these stories taught as parables, what Jesus is doing is helping us understand who we are in the parable. Don't put yourself in the place of Jesus who's doing the teaching. We put ourselves in the place of the sinful people Jesus is speaking to. Being a Christian, then, should cause us to truthfully and authentically 
humble ourselves in light of God's holiness. When we understand who God is and what God has said is the standard in Jesus for us, we have no choice but to be humble in light of that. And I'm not talking the Midwest, Minnesota, nice version of pride that hides behind humility. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Paul writes in Philippians 2, where we should think of others as better than ourselves type of humility. The kind of humility that says, I hear what God is saying, now what's God saying to me? I see what they're saying about that person. What does that say about me? That kind of humility. So being a Christian begins with recognizing and acknowledging who and what we are, and also, just as importantly, who and what we're not. We're not Jesus. We're not God. We're the people that the stories and the parables are told to. We're sinners. And because we're sinners, we're selfish. We put our own interests ahead of everybody else's. We're prideful. We're prone to overlook our own faults and flaws and sin in favor of pointing out the faults of others because it's easier to do and it feels better to us. But once we recognize our sin, we see the only answer is Jesus and the free gift of salvation that God gives us through Him. The only answer isn't trying harder, improving ourselves more, working more or anything else, the free gift of salvation through Jesus and His death and resurrection is the only hope that we have. It is through Jesus that we're made whole. It is in Jesus that we are made righteous before God. It is only through Jesus, who the Bible says is the way and the truth and the life, that we go from being a selfish sinner to being a heaven-bound saint. And that is the journey of a Christian. To go from being a sinner who recognizes our need for a Savior to being a saint who's bound for heaven. So with that background, let's look at this parable. Luke 15, Cindy read uh, the first part of it last week. We're going to quickly dive in and take a look at all of it. If you've got your Bible, new believer or otherwise, go to Luke 15. Uh, The translation I'm using is a New Living translation like the one that we give. If yours is different, the words are going to be similar, but they probably won't be identical. I'm going to go back to Luke 15:1 because it sets the stage for who Jesus is talking to. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Do you hear how Luke opens that? Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Guess who wasn't much loved back in that day? Uh, Israel's version of the IRS, apparently. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. You had to wonder why. Was it because they wanted more ammo in how it is that they judged and condemned other people? Did they want to try to feel better about themselves? It doesn't say right here. But what it does say is that this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. Who does this guy think he is? Here's the deal. If you're going to become a Christian and you're going to let the people in the world know it, There are religious people who will criticize you for everything that you do. There are religious people, and for the sake of this message, I'm calling the religionists. They will look to find fault in everything that you do. But the good news is you're in good company. They did the very same thing with Jesus. See, being a Christian is a few things, and it isn't a few things. Being a Christian does not mean that you are trying to fit in with the world's crowd. In fact, it means you will probably stand against the crowd. 
being a Christian who is simply a follower of Jesus probably means that you're not supposed to embarrass or shame other people for their faults or their flaws or their sins. But you are to come alongside them in love. And we're going to talk about that later. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you should try hanging around with perfect people. It should mean that you're doing your very best to live to, stir, to serve a perfect Savior. Being a Christ follower then means to be a person who lives like Jesus. We live in the example of Jesus and what He set. And when you do that, there are people in the world... Here's the thing. You don't get criticized for your sin by people who don't call themselves Christians. You get called a hypocrite. It's other Christians, the religionists, who will call you out on your sin. And just like with Jesus, when we start living for Him, people are going to start calling you out. And like I said, that's okay. Jesus is good company. But he's talking to these people that all the church people thought he shouldn't have had anything to do with. So he tells them the story about the lost sheep. Sheep have some value. They, they have an understanding whether you are a shepherd or not. People understood sheep. And then he goes on and he talks about something that means a little bit more to folks, the lost coin. When we lose money, boy, we're going to pay attention there. And then he decides to really bring it home. The parable of the lost son. Chapter 15, verse 11, to illustrate the point further, the Bible says, Jesus told them this story. You get to decide who you're going to identify with now. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want. That's where we get in trouble. I want. That's where we get in trouble. See, as a Christian, we should say, God, what do you want? God, what do you want me to do? What does your word say? What does your will say? Sin usually begins with, I want. And then we justify what we want. And we're introduced to the younger son saying, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Oh, the audacity. We don't know how old this guy, let's say he's a late teenager, early 20s, we don't know. He recognizes that his father is a man of wealth. He recognizes that he is going to get a share, albeit the smaller share. His older brother will get the larger share. When the father dies, he's not willing to wait. This guy is so self-absorbed, he's going to say, Dad, I want you to be like your dad and give me my part of your money. It's a ridiculous request. It's unimaginable. And yet how often do Christians squander away the good gifts of God because of what we want? I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Here's the thing, and this is where we have to be careful. When you say, I want, God will allow you to have it. God will allow you to choose the thing that you want. It might be sin. It might be selfishness. It might be pride. It might be any number of things. But when you say, I want, and you ignore God, God will let you make that choice. And the younger son says, I want my share, because God allows us to make those choices. A few days later, verse 13, this younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land, away from community, away from his family, away from accountability. He went away to where people didn't know him and he could do whatever he wanted to do. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. He chose to live on his terms. I want to spend my money the way I want. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anyone to tell me that I can't. About this time, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. 
He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. How did he end up in this situation in the first place? Because he left his provider. He left the one who took care of him. And a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded the local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. There couldn't have been a worse job. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Why did no one give him anything? Because he chose to live life on his terms, separate from anybody who knew or cared about him, separate from his father, his provider. When he finally came to his senses, some Bibles say when he finally came to his self, what does that mean? When he started thinking clearly, when he was cold and dirty and smelly and hungry. Yeah, life knocks you down far enough, suddenly you start to look at yourself a little bit a different way. When he finally came to his senses, when he started to think clearly, when he started weighing the weight of his sinfulness and his disobedience and his selfishness and his mistakes and his pride, he came to himself and he realized that he didn't much like what he saw. He said to himself, at home, he still considers that home now, right? At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. He is literally dying at the result of his sinfulness. That's a message that we don't want to have lost on us. God will allow you to choose what you want, but he will also allow you to die there. But that's not his plan. He says, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. The first part of becoming a Christian is to realize who we are and who we are not. To realize that we are sinners dying in need of a Savior. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. Suddenly this becomes very personal to him. He says, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. It's true. You maybe have taken yourself to a place in your life where you called yourself a Christian for a long time, but you let I want take over, and suddenly you realize you're no longer worthy of being called a Christian. You're no longer worthy of being called a son or daughter of God. And he decides he's going to go back and say, please take me on as a hired servant. He's finally figured out humility. Not that false pride humility. This is real, raw humility. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I find that phrase to be so fascinating. I don't know what the environment was like, but my guess is it was a desert. Dad could see a long way in every direction. It sounds like Dad had a big estate, a lot of money, a lot of land, a lot of animals. And so probably he had a long driveway, what we would call. He could see a long way. And his dad sees him coming. I have to believe that the dad had been waiting. That the dad had spent every day that that son had walked away hoping he would come home. Kind of the way God is waiting for lost sons and daughters to come home to Him. Rather than being angry, saying, I told you so, saying, this is what you deserve, the Bible says, filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son. Now, you've got to think for just a moment here. The guy's been living in a farm that someone else belongs to. He's got no food. He's been in feeding the pigs, looking at their food, saying, that looks like a five-course meal. He did not smell good. He hadn't had a bath. I can't imagine this guy was much to see, much less anything you'd want to be around. But his father ran, runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. The son said, Father, I have sinned exactly like he rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. 
What's the point for us to take there? God is always watching and waiting for you to come home. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't matter what you've done. It does not matter how much of I want you've allowed to take control of your life. If you're willing to acknowledge who you are and what you've done, God is waiting for you to come home. And essentially what the father does is says, Welcome home, son. His father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. The best clothes we can in a ring showing the son's position has been returned to him. And sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and he has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. When the Bible talks about as a Christian, God turns us into a new creation. We have been lost, but we are found. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. We get to meet the third character now. You can choose to put yourself in the place of the younger son. I'd caution you not to do the father. You can be the younger son and say, I identify with a lot of that. Or you can choose to be the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. He was being obedient. He was being diligent. He was doing what he'd always done. He was being a good boy. When he returned home, he heard music dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. You'd think the elder brother would have been excited. He would have been happy. His brother was home. And says, though, the older brother was angry. Remember I told you about some Christians are just angry? They just exude anger. The older son was angry. And he wouldn't even go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. That, folks, is the voice of religionists. God, you should love me because I've done everything right from the beginning. I've done everything you've asked. Problem is, with the religionists, they never see their own sin. When they don't even see their own sin, they can't even see the grace of God at work in their life, much less anyone else's. The older brother had such a spirit of religiousness about him, he couldn't even celebrate that his brother, this sinner, was home. (coughs) The father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Too many churches are full of too many religionists that can't celebrate when a sinner comes back to God in humility. They can't celebrate that they've given their life to Jesus and because of Him they get a fresh start. And see, the fact of the matter is God has love enough for all of us. God has love enough for you. It doesn't matter how far you've gone in one direction or the other. It doesn't matter the decisions that you've made. It doesn't matter how far you've pushed God away. God is that Father waiting at the other end of the driveway, watching for you, waiting for you to come home. God has that much love for all of us. There's room in the church for all of us. And that's the message that we need to remember, that we as Christians need to celebrate. Religionists are just angry. 
Christians are filled with joy. So what are the basics that we learn from this parable? (coughs) First of all, we recognize and admit to God that we're a sinner. We let our want take over. Not what, what did you create me for, God? Not what do you want from me, God? What are you calling me to, God? How can I be obedient, God? We let our want take over. We recognize and admit to God that we're a sinner. We believe that Jesus died on the cross as the penalty for our sins and understand that the penalty for sin is death. There had to be a death. It was Jesus' obedient death on the cross. After you do that, what do we do? We confess, which means we admit, and that is not fun. And then we repent, which means we stop, and with the Holy Spirit's help, we turn away from our sin. We repent and we confess our sins. And then we receive Jesus as our Savior. And so far, the only thing that we've done is be honest. We've allowed ourselves a little bit of humility and a lot of honesty. And at that point, Jesus becomes our Savior and our eternity changes. What's up to us is that our life has to start changing. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, which is to be a Christ follower, means that we live as a forgiven follower of Jesus. We live in a new way. How do we do that? We start a relationship with God in prayer. We start telling Him what's going on in our life. Guess what? He already knows. You want to keep your sin from It's too late. He already knows. You uh, don't want to brag. You don't want to celebrate something awesome that happened in your life. You know what? He already knows. Prayer is just that conversation. And with every relationship, it works best if we say a little and we listen a lot. We get into our Bibles. We start reading. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. You start reading in your Bible and getting to know the character and the personality of God. God's plan for humankind. God's plan for you. It talks all about Jesus and and what it is that Jesus did for you. And then you find a Bible teaching church that will help you grow in your faith. And as a part of that Bible teaching church, you don't question the Bible, you believe the Bible. It doesn't mean you're going to understand everything. It doesn't mean you're not going to doubt some of it. But you believe it and accept it. And you put yourself in Christian community. What did the prodigal son do that was so wrong? He took advantage of his father's good intentions and his kind heart, and he left community. So you become a part of a church. You start changing your friends and start picking up Christian friends who are going to help you along the road to living as a Christian. And you know what you're going to do it together? The Bible says we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. The fear of realizing how close to eternal death we were and trembling because we're never quite sure if we get it right. But we keep trying. And with God's help, we make a step forward every single day. And I want to warn you about something that's going on in the world right now. There's this trend right now towards the house church. People staying home on Sundays and gathering at home and, you know, just kind of being critical of God's gathered body as though, you know, the perfect church would have perfect people. Well, guess what? There is no perfect church because it's full of imperfect people. But we serve a perfect Savior. And the problem that you're going to have and put yourself like the prodigal son real quickly say, well, I'm going to stay away from those people. Remember, Jesus spent his time with them. You stay away from those people and think you're going to do it on your own and the only thing that matters is what you want. Is there a perfect church? No, there isn't. Data looked over this message yesterday and she goes, you know, I ought to do that verse from Hebrews 10. I said, no, I'm not going there tomorrow. My Bible verse, 5 o'clock this morning, pops up on my phone. Guess which one it was? <laughs> Hebrews 10, 
So she does this stuff with the music every Sunday, and then she picks the right Bible verses. So whether you're a brand new baby Christian, whether you're an almost, I'm not quite sure I buy it Christian, or whether you're a seasoned veteran of the faith, Hebrews 10 warns us, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of people I want to hang around. doesn't talk about being perfect. doesn't talk about having it all figured out. It talks about a bunch of people who motivate each other to be better for Jesus. Motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. But encourage one another. See, when you stop meeting together, all you do is become critical. And you're all on your own. Let's not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is near. Why is that so important? Jesus is coming back, and it looks like He's coming back soon. Are you ready for Him? I mean, are you really ready for Him? If you're not, this is the best place to be. This is the very best place to be because you're going to understand who He is. You're going to have an opportunity to be in a relationship with Him. And you're going to be surrounded by people who take two steps forward and sin takes us one step backwards. But we keep on marching. Find a church and plug in. Maybe you think the church doesn't need me. They wouldn't even care if I'm not there. Well, we've gotten to be a little bit of a bigger church and it's hard to keep track of everybody, but you need to know something. As a Christian, you are the church. You are the church, a member of the bride of Christ. And when God called the church to be the bride of Christ, that is a good thing. Jesus is going to return as the groom to take his bride. We are a part of the church. You need the church and the church needs you. You say, well, the church doesn't really need me. Yes, we do. We need your life experience. We need what you've learned from your mistakes. We need to learn the story, the testimony, like Cindy shared with us last week, of your life, not everything you did right, but maybe some of the things you did wrong that God corrected you and moved you forward. The church needs that. It builds the body. But if you choose to be like the sun and go away to a far-off land and live on your own, not only do you lose accountability, you lose community. So what do you do as a Christian? You want to start living your life as a follower of Jesus? Read your Bible. Start in the New Testament. Go to the Gospel of John. Don't start three books into the Old Testament. You'll get lost and give up. Start with the Gospel of John and get to know Jesus. Get a a program on your phone or your iPad or whatever it is that helps you listen to it. This year, one of the things I've committed to is I'm listening to the Bible all the way through. And it's shed a very different light on things, hearing it rather than reading it. Get to know your Bible. Get to know God through prayer. Welcome Jesus into every moment of your life. Find a church that teaches the Bible, who loves and accepts you for who you are, but like God says, you know what, we love you too much to let you stay there. God's got more for your life than what you've experienced. And then get involved. Be around other Christians. Becoming a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. To live as a Christian, we need help. We need each other. Let's pray. God, thank you for this parable that Jesus taught about the prodigal son. We don't always like to see ourselves in the light that Scripture puts us in, but it's pretty clear with this one. Not only did the nation of Israel stray from you, but we stray from you. But God, there you are, waiting to welcome us home. Waiting and watching. Waiting for the day that we appear. And God, give us hearts of humility. Give us hearts that recognize who we are and who we are not. What we are and what we are not. 
And then God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that He did all the work for us. We need to accept and acknowledge and believe in Him and then begin to live our lives for Him. Not for us, not for what we want, but for what you want for us. God, we just give you thanks. We give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that helps us become people of faith. And we give you thanks for Jesus because through him you did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave, you might be wondering, okay, Pastor, give me one thing. What's one thing I can do as a basic of being a Christian? What's one thing I can do this week? Are you ready? Here you go. It's our mission statement. You can love Jesus with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And in loving your neighbor as yourself, which is the other part of that, you can love people. But we love people the way Jesus loved them. So you can love Jesus, you can love people, and then you can be a part of something that's called discipleship that's the thread throughout the New Testament. You can teach people to love Jesus. What can you do as a brand new believer, as an almost believer, as a seasoned believer and veteran? Love Jesus, love people, teach people to love Jesus. Thanks for coming, everybody. One more song before you go. Have a great week.